If you're visiting with us, if you have not been out to a Sunday night, it seems like forever since we've done a Sunday night because we had all the Christmas things and the Christmas program and then we had back-to-back holiday weekends with New Year's on one and Christmas on the other. So it's been three weeks since we've been in the book of Acts. But if you turn to Acts chapter 9, as we continue this, the story of the early church, the first century church, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. As we turn our attention now to the next portion, we're going to be picking up a little bit here with the story of Saul, who's still Saul of Tarsus. He's going to get introduced as Paul a little bit later here in the book of Acts, but he's still Saul of Tarsus in tonight's passage. But I think it's important for us to go back just a little bit to set the, set the tone for what's happening as we pick up uh, in verse 19 and, and down through verse 43 tonight. But as you look back a little bit in verses 10 through 19, we meet this man named Ananias. And Ananias is a wonderful picture, a practical lesson, if you will, some things that we can draw from the conversion of Saul. And they're really important things for us as the body of Christ. As we think on our own lives, I think some of us uh, often deny the actual potential that God sees in us. God sees tremendous potential in every last person on this planet. And I think sometimes we think that God only uses very special people to do special things. And here's the real truth of it. God makes special people out of ordinary people. God takes the ordinary and does the extraordinary. He doesn't just use already gifted people. He uses very, you know, normal people that you and I would look at and we don't really see the potential that God sees. But God does see that potential. And so I want to Look at verses 19 and 20, and then I want to just simply pray for our time in the Word tonight as we journey again with the Apostle Paul, who will still be Saul to us in these passages. But it says there in verse 19, And so when he had received food, remember, Saul of Tarsus has this encounter with God. He's been stricken blind. Uh, A a very feisty man named Ananias, who really does not want to go minister to this this man because Ananias is a Christian and he's heard the reputation of Saul of Tarsus. He's known as one who persecuted the church, who tried to kill Christians. And so his reputation has preceded him uh, on this road experience to Damascus. Uh, And so when he had received food, it says, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And then immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Father, thank you for this amazing group of people that are out tonight. Lord, they could be doing a lot of other things. And they've come to hear from you. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would speak into our lives wonderful truths that we can use. Lord, wonderful history that is the story of us as the church. Pray that you would bless us with your presence tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. There's some things that we can draw from this story of this man, Ananias. And the first thing that I I would say to you 
is that God can use anybody. We don't know a thing about Ananias. He doesn't have a historical record. He's not known as an apostle. He's not somebody that we see used anywhere else in Scripture. He's used in the life of one man. We've never heard of him before. We're not going to hear of him again. He's going to play a part yet in all of that in the ongoing work of the church. And so this is where it's important for you. You see, some people say, well, you know, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I, you know, I, I really don't know that I have any gifts. Let me ask you a question. Can you fulfill what is our goal for 2017, which is for each one to win one? Can you lead one person to Christ? Can you be used of God to touch a single person's life? If so you might well be the next Ananias. And I want you to see how important Ananias is to you and I, to the church, to the world, to the Lord, because of God, how God uses him. And here's a simple truth. Behind every well-known saint of God, there are often hundreds, maybe thousands, but certainly one unknown saint of God that was used in that person's life to speak the truth, to minister the gospel so that that person gets on the right track in the first place. The important thing is not fame. It's not fortune. The important thing, as far as God is concerned, in all of our lives is our faithfulness. Will we do what God's asked us to do? And as you look back, and you don't need to read it right now, but as you look back at the story of Ananias, at first he's like, I'm not sure I want to do this. But because he knows the voice of the Lord, he actually does what God tells him to do. In spite of the fact he didn't quite understand why the Lord would want to spare a man who had tried to persecute the church. Anybody else had that type of experience in your life where you don't understand why God spares the life or spares the, the character or spares the individual that seemingly is going nowhere for the Lord? I certainly have. We, we call that being judgmental, by the way. Surely we've all looked at people's lives and go, well, they're not destined for greatness, okay? And so if you had followed your own leading you would have also missed Saul of Tarsus. But he listens to God. He's faithful to the word of the Lord. You see, ultimately, as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the first five, five verses there, it says there, so let a man consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found faithful. In other words, everything that anyone ever does, as far as the kingdom is concerned, myself included, anything that ever gets accomplished because I'm here on this earth is actually a work of the Lord. It's not a work of Jeff. It's not a work of Calvary Chapel. It's not a work of this building, this church, and us as a group of people. It's hopefully and prayerfully at its core, at its heart, a work of the Lord. 
I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. Why God would choose to use me, why God would choose any of us, is really God's business. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human, a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. He says, I think I'm doing okay, but that's not how I'm going to be judged. I'm not justified that way. But he who judges me is the Lord. And therefore, the judge, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. For who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, and then each one's praise will come from God. You see, ultimately, God knows what God wants to do. And sometimes he does some things that we don't understand. The Apostle Paul knew that. And he's, he's using Ananias, in essence, as a tool, God is. And you and I may have not used him. We would have taken that initial response. Isn't it funny how we take people's initial response and we just assign that as the end-all, be-all? You know, the moment they say no, I I can't even tell you how many times I've seen people in ministry where, where, you know, maybe they've had a little bit of hesitation and, boy, somebody will judge them just like that. Before you know it, there's, there's no place for them to serve in the kingdom. We need to be reminded, I think, frequently and often that God uses ordinary people. Ananias also reminds us that we shouldn't be afraid to follow God's will. Ananias actually argues with the Lord. He actually even gave some good reasons why he shouldn't do it. When you read that passage, you're going to, I I agree with Ananias. Matter of fact, maybe you should just take a gun and shoot Saul. You know, we, we would come up with some other alternate plan. But when God speaks, we need to not be afraid to both listen and then to do. When God commands us, he's working from both ends of that equation. You see, we only see the place that we're at. We have limited knowledge and limited understanding. And so as this passage unfolds before us tonight, we have to remember that God sees the beginning, he sees the end, and everything in between. So God uses people like Ananias. And we need to not be afraid to step into that place ourselves. Another thing that we see is that God's works are always perfectly balanced. Again, when you look at Ananias' life, you would say, eh, well, you know, that's a little weighted to one side of the equation or the other. God is going to balance a great public miracle with, with a quiet meeting in a house and a in a trip on the Damascus road to where the presence of the Lord knocks Saul to his... We, we would not assemble all those things. Yet in God's incredible economy, he takes bright light from heaven and a voice, dramatic events, and he takes ordinary Ananias. So he has the extraordinary over here, this incredible event where Saul of Tarsus actually becomes saved... And then he uses a guy that isn't really known to be an evangelist to do it. He takes that ordinary life event. And then finally, a fourth thing before we dig into the meat of our passage tonight. And I think it's probably the most important thing. 
is we should never underestimate the value of both leading one person and that one person coming to faith in Christ. Never underestimate that value because you don't know what God is going to do with that life. It's not your job to try and figure out, well, I want to reach the very best people with the gospel. I'm going to be heading in a couple of weeks to Nicaragua. And I'll be meeting with pastors primarily of churches of 50 to maybe 100 people. We often have more people than that in our prayer room after a service. So you're kind of sitting there thinking, well, why would you, know, why would you go there for this very purpose? Maybe there's that one person inside of one of those churches in Nicaragua and I'm going to get a chance to minister to their pastor and their pastor is going to speak a truth and that one person in the congregation is going to lead one other person to faith in Christ and that one person is going to be the one who reaches all of Central America. We don't know. We need to not assign value based on numbers or extraordinary things or or the grandiosity uh, of even ministry. I I think one of the great faults of of what we call in our world megachurches is there can be a sense that because of the grandeur of all the work that's getting done that it's somehow better than the small church with a few people where that one person comes to faith in Christ. And we need to remember that the Lord works in mysterious ways. And sometimes the very biggest things that are going on in our world are in the most ordinary ways. And through what we would call maybe less gifted people. But God isn't looking for giftedness. He's looking for faithfulness. And so we start there in this passage of scripture tonight. Saul of Tarsus will become the Apostle Paul. And I'll give you a couple of examples of these very things. You see, Peter, we've already seen, was ministering to thousands in Jerusalem, right? He preaches a message and 3,000 people get saved at once. We would go, that's a great work of God. And Ananias, he's kind of, you know, down at the local coffee shop. He's sitting at Starbucks talking to the same kid. You see how we could fall into that trap? Well, I mean, they went forward at the Harvest Crusade. I mean, that's got to be worth more to God. That's not how God looks at it. Great work at the Harvest Crusade. Great that thousands of people flock to the field. But it's also great that that one person gets led to Christ at Starbucks. You, You see... Peter was leading thousands. Philip was also seeing a great harvest among the Samaritan people. But Ananias was sent to exactly one man. On April 21st of 1855, a man named Edward Kimball was in his Sunday school class. He had taught the same Sunday school class for 21 straight years. Fourth graders. In that class was a young man that he led to Christ named D.L. Moody. He never pastored a church. He was not known as an evangelist, but he took the time, Edward Kimball, to lead D.L. Moody to Christ. 
And through that one life, the Moody Church, the Moody Bible Institute, the Moody movie production company that does all kinds of great Christian films, all of those things were really because of Edward Kemble being faithful to teach a Sunday school class for 21 years. I'll give you another one. Probably not a single person in here that's ever heard the name Norman B. Harrison. Norman B. Harrison was a shoe salesman. He actually lived in a one-room flat. But Norman B. Harrison had a Bible study at his home. And he led a man named Theodore Epp to faith in Christ in his home. One of five people that he can remember the, whole time, the entire time that he had the Bible study in his house that he led to Christ. Theodore Epp would go on to build J. Vernon McGee's entire radio ministry, which is the most listened to Christian radio ministry in the world. What happened in a home Bible study? By a man that you've never heard of, and probably had I not told you his name, you would still not have heard of him. Maybe you would have heard of Theodore Epp because his name is known in that, in that circle. But he's almost the founder of Christian radio. You see, our task is to simply be available to God to lead one person to faith in Christ. And if you lead one, you might have you lead two. You might have you lead 20 or 30 or 50. You may get a chance to, to stand and see hundreds or thousands come to faith in Christ. But your goal is to be like Ananias. Just to simply be faithful. And if God tells you to go, go and preach your heart out. Amen? Verse 20 here in Acts 9. And then immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. And now remember when he says the Christ, and he's speaking to a principally Jewish audience, he's speaking of Messiah. And so this is the same Messiah that the Jewish people would have been looking for. And as a Pharisee, he was very well versed in who Messiah was. And so as he's preaching this, you can imagine when you're preaching to a Jewish audience as a former Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, who was there at the stoning of Stephen, this is probably not going to put you in good graces. This is going to get you into a lot of trouble. And so Saul is going to meet the opposition in that sense. The side that he used to be on, he's now going to be against. And can I tell you a little secret? When you give your life to Christ, those people you used to be with at the bar, they're going to be against you. That relationship that you were in that you now cut off because you realize that that's not of the Lord, that person is going to turn on you, more than likely. The family that used to be totally fine when you came over and you were smoking a little reefer with them, they're going to probably not be so happy to have you around anymore. Some of you are going, amen, brother. You, you see, when you are transformed, when you have a transformational experience with the Lord, you're going from one side to the other side. You're going from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. And so the people who are still enemies of God don't really like the friends of God all that much because they feel bad when they're around the friends of God. 
Very often it reminds them of their own need for a Savior, and they're not really into that. And so immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now, teaching that Messiah is Son of God is about as far as you can go, as far as a Hebrew person would be concerned, in being blasphemous. If you wanted to get a bunch of rabbis mad at you, that would be a good way to do it. And then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? You you see, you can't escape your reputation. The way that you were known before, one of the beauties of what we call our testimony is what we were before. Amen? Same thing in Saul's life. This is who he was. It's an absolute truth. Yes, he was the guy. I love this. He said, wasn't he the one who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose? You see, they don't even trust him. Even the believers are looking at his life going, I mean, we need to kind of stay away from this guy. So that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. You see, one of the best ways for you to go in-depth in proving who Jesus is is to use the Old Testament scriptures, specifically the prophetic word of God about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Now you have this man who is a Hebrew of Hebrews, You have this man who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who was a Pharisee, who who from the eighth day circumcised and faultless before the law, Scripture declares of him. You have this man that knows everything about the Old Testament Scriptures, and he's now preaching that Jesus is Messiah and the Son of God. So they're, they're freaking out. The people that are hearing this message now, they're going, I didn't know that was in there. Is that what that really means? They're actually questioning their own faith. Why they believe what they believe. And now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And that's exactly why. Because there, there is nothing more powerful than a person who was on the other side that's now fully transformed into a child of God. Because they know how to answer all of the questions that everyone's answered, because they had the same questions. But their plot came to be known to Saul, and they watched the gates by day and night to kill him. And then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And so we have this picture uh, of Saul now just incredibly being used of the Lord. And we see some things here that I think are important for us. And and the first thing that I see is Saul does what he knows to do. He doesn't have the whole picture yet, I don't believe, though I believe that this time actually laps over between verse 21 and verse 22. I believe it is there that you insert his three years that he spent down in Arabia. And, And we'll get to that in a moment. So Saul has gone and spent time with the Lord. But he didn't go to a seminary. He just went and spent time with the Lord. And so he comes back and he uses what God's given him. And that's really what God's asking of each of us. He's just simply asking you to use what he's given you. 
He's not going to necessarily completely reshape all of your character and life experience and turn you into something else. He's going to use what you already are. And he does that with Saul. And so Saul begins to share his own story. And, and, and I think sometimes we, we almost hinder the work of the Lord in being too structured in, in what we say to new believers. Because I've been in situations, uh, we did a, a thing down at the Oceanside Amphitheater a number of years ago. My goodness, probably close to 30 years ago. And we're, we're down at the amphitheater, and we've got all these bands, and, you know, there's just a simple gospel message that's being shared, and, you know, a bunch of people get saved, and we decide we're going to do another one, and we come back a couple of weeks later, and some of the guys that got saved a couple of weeks before are out sharing the gospel with other people. Yeah, I gave my life to Jesus. And there were actually some people that were from a couple of other churches that were wandering around. Well, do they have authority to share the gospel? They've only been saved for two weeks. I'm like, of course they do. But sometimes we hinder the work of the Lord by, well, you need to do this class and take that. You know, the best thing that you can do to lead people to Christ is tell them about what happened to you. We call it your testimony. Yes, you have to give them the truth of the gospel, but that is a pretty simple thing to do. A handful of scriptures, a, a, a little trip down the Romans road, and you've got the basis for the gospel. And so Saul is now sharing the gospel in the way that he knows how. And I believe, as I said, Galatians chapter 1 there in verse 17 kind of gives us this picture of Saul taking a, a journey to Arabia. And I believe that it's inserted here between verses 21 and 22 because Saul has increased in strength. He spent some time uh, away from all of this that was going on in Damascus and Jerusalem. And, and now he, he's come back and he's being used of the Lord now, we don't know exactly how long he stayed there, uh, but we know that the intervening time was at least three years. And I believe that it was there that he got alone with the Lord. And perhaps it's there on his journey back that that Second Corinthians passage that tells us there in chapter 11 that he experienced all these perils and difficult things in his life. More than likely, this is the time frame when that happened. And so scripture very often leaves these gaps where other pieces of information are inserted. And I believe this is one of them. And the important thing about Saul's trip to Arabia is that he told us in Galatians that he didn't confer with flesh and blood. It wasn't like he was someplace getting instruction from the apostles. He was someplace getting instruction from God. And that's what you really need. You need to get instruction from God. Because I've seen people that have graduated from Bible college that, quite frankly, are just about useless to the Lord. Because it's become an intellectual exercise for them. And they have a whole bunch of head knowledge, and that head knowledge has done exactly what Scripture says it can do. If it's not used correctly, knowledge puffs up. And they become so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. And they're wandering around just trying to argue and debate with people and everything becomes about one person's understanding or a specific doctrinal bent that maybe they have from a denomination or whatever that they, they've been engaged with. But Saul goes away to spend time with the Lord. 
And so he's not borrowing anything from the apostles in Jerusalem. He, he didn't get instructed by Peter. And the reason this is so important is God is forming the early church. And if all of the apostles looked and talked and acted exactly the same, it'd have a tough time spreading out to where God wants the gospel to go. Because we're going to see the apostle Paul become called to the Gentiles. And so he needs to have a Gentile ability to share the gospel. And while he's in the synagogue, which would be a natural place for a Jewish man, especially a rabbi, to go to church, he's going to take all of that knowledge and he's now going to take it out into the world. Something that's important for you to remember. Satan always tries to rip off new believers. Always tries to get to new believers. No sooner than Saul was saved, his troubles began. I mean, basically, the moment he comes to faith in Christ, then he's having all these perils. We see it in this passage. The moment he begins to say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he's Messiah, what happens? People are trying to kill him. And people are going to try and kill you, metaphorically speaking. They're going to try and slaughter your character. They're, they're, going, to, they're going to, you know, try and bash you. Well, you know, it'll never last. They're going to try and discourage you. They're going to try and keep you from coming to church. They're going to try and drag you back into the world. The moment people get saved, the enemy starts to begin to work in our lives. Throughout his life, this great apostle is going to be hated. He's going to be hunted. Uh, he's going to be plotted against. Both Jews and Gentiles are going to do that. And that's why in 2 Corinthians there in chapter 11, it says, Look, I was in perils of my own countrymen. I was hunted down by people who knew me. He said he was in perils of the Gentiles. He goes on to say, I was shipwrecked thrice, three times. He has all these experiences because he gives his life to Jesus. Because he's being used. So remember that. Don't count it a strange thing when you fall into diverse trials. Remember, as James said, don't, it shouldn't be weird to you. Because the enemy doesn't like the fact that you're being used for the Lord. Didn't like it in Saul's life, won't like it in your life. Matter of fact, that's why Paul would write to Timothy, his young understudy there in 2 Timothy in chapter 3. He says, look, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not might, Will. That's who we are. You're, you're going to go through stuff. You're going to have things that you're, you're going to be able to directly attribute to the fact that you are a believer. You're someone who loves the Lord. Verse 25, we can see Saul on his return trip to Jerusalem. So he's gone away. There, there are kind of two stages to this experience with the church in Jerusalem. And we're going to look at them in a second. But he's gone away. He's had this salvation experience. He's gone off to Arabia. He's come back. It's now three years later at least. And it says, And then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Look, Saul's night escape here during his first day in Damascus, just after his conversion, they had, he had one then and now he has another one. The enemy is, is constantly hounding him. But God is more than able. And in this case, you know, if he's really 
done what we believe has happened in his life, and he's gone, he's spent time alone with God, he's going to be a powerful force. So the enemy is going to come against him powerfully. So I always remind people, the more you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, the more you're lining yourself up to be attacked. And we kind of have, we kind of joke in our house, it's like, oh, it's Monday. So the day after Sunday, so God does this great thing in church and people come and they're, you know, getting saved and doing all the wonderful things that happen here. Guess what happens to pastors on Monday? It's like Satan just beats you to a pulp. I can't even tell you how many times you wake up and, and you know, there's, I've already gotten text, you know, the church is on fire or whatever. And it happens. Somebody died. I can't tell you how many people have gotten in car wrecks on Monday. Crazy things are happening. You go to serve the Lord, there's going to be stuff that's going to happen in your life. Happened in Saul's life, it's going to happen in your life. What is clear in this passage is that Saul's preaching put him in the headlines and that put him in the line of fire for the Jewish religious leadership. Other believers even looked at Saul's transformed life and they're kind of like skeptical at first. And now they're going to, now some of them are going to help him. And so they take him to the city wall. And they, again, people debate this. They go, well, you know, how would they let him down through the city wall? If you remember, especially the story of Nehemiah, you can also see it in the life of Rahab. Remember, Rahab had a very similar situation. Judges chapter 2. But in the book of Nehemiah, if you remember, one of the things that Nehemiah had everyone do was everyone built the section of wall that was behind their own home. So you had the city wall, and then you had houses, and on top of the roof of the houses was another place for people to be. And so it would have been very easy for them to lower him over the city wall and outside of the city. And and consequently, uh, he has this incredible great escape. He gets away from those who are trying to hunt him down. And the Lord knows exactly what to do with us at what time. And so there's a couple of things here. We, we see first that Saul is absolutely not going to be accept, accepted. Here's a thing for you to take and to remind other people that you interact with about your relationship with the Lord. Your reputation stays with you for a long time. When you give your life to Christ, the enemy is going to use your old reputation to try and keep you tied to the past. And that's what's going on here in Saul's life. The enemy's over there prodding and poking at people. Oh, well, you know how Saul used to be. I mean, he could not possibly be that transformed. And so you need to be aware of him. So he was not accepted at first because he was, frankly, he was the scourge of the church. He, he was that guy that tried to destroy the church. And so he was rejected. And then verse 27, as we move on, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and they had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so while he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. Now the Hellenists were Jews with a Greek background and Greek speaking. So they were largely very intelligent. They kind of had the best of both worlds in that sense. They had kind of a Greek mindset and a Jewish faith. 
And so these guys were a force to be reckoned with. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And then the churches throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they multiplied. And so we see this man, Barnabas, step in, means son of encouragement. Most people know that if you walk with the Lord for a while. So this encourager comes alongside of Saul and says, look, they're not going to accept you unless you have somebody to vouch for your character. Can I ask you to find people in your own life and, and be willing to step in the fray for them and to step in and vouch for their character? When you know someone, one of the ways that we build the body of Christ is by encouraging each other and being an encouragement for each other. And I can tell you there have been an awful lot of times when we've had some kind of thing go on here at the church and it takes... In essence, the voice of someone who really knows the situation, who's willing to get involved, Barnabas would do that. He stepped into that gap and said, you know what, Paul may not be perfect, Saul may not be perfect, but I can vouch for his character. I've watched him lead people to faith in Christ. Because I believe at this point in time, Saul still had some rough edges. I think he was a work in progress after three years, and I think there were some things that you probably would have watched about him, and you would have said, yeah, I think that's a little bit of the old Pharisee creeping out there. And so someone comes alongside and says, don't worry about that, because I've been with him, and I can vouch for his character. He may have a couple of rough spots, but you let me take him under my wing, and I'll work with them. Be willing to step up for other people. It's such an encouragement to them to, to finally be accepted. And so Barnabas takes hold of Saul, brings him to the leaders of the church, says, look, the guy's teaching that Jesus is the risen Christ, okay? It doesn't get any better than that. And he, and he makes sure that Saul gets a, a fresh start. We need to be careful about keeping people anchored to the past and be willing to give people fresh starts. Now, there are certain things in ministry that I think there, you, you can disqualify yourself. But it doesn't mean that that person is shelved forever. It doesn't mean that God can't use them at all. And, and sometimes we, we take those things a little further than I think God intends. And we miss the opportunity to watch God work a miracle in someone's life because we have judged them, sent them before the jury of our own consent, and, and in essence found them guilty and said, ah, I don't think we're ever going to see anything good out of that person again. And so he invests in, in Saul's life. He seized the opportunity to, to strengthen Saul. And what an investment that was, Amen. What an investment that was. Taking that risk paid great dividends, didn't it? Are you willing to take a risk in somebody's life that it might pay great dividends? Now again, notice what I said. It's a risk. It is a risk vouching for other people. It's a risk coming alongside and really discipling them. It, it's a risk being, in use, being used in someone's life who maybe has stumbled, maybe has fallen. But I believe it's a risk generally worth taking. And I think we need to be open to that if we're really going to be loving in how we minister to people who have 
had some issues. Saul stays with them and, and he moves freely about Jerusalem speaking the name of the Lord. You, you see, they, they began by experience to see that Saul really had a revamped reputation. It was visible. It was clear. It takes time to figure those out. You know, sometimes we, we just say, well, I'm going to give them two tries, and if they fail after two tries, it's over. Hasn't God been gracious and good to us? We need to be gracious and good to other people and give them some opportunities to clear up their reputation, to let them be worked on by the Lord and then, and then used. And again, that's not to smooth over and just dismiss sin. But it's just simply say, look, there's a, there's a legitimate change. Maybe that change hasn't happened as fast or as completely as we think it ought to. But give people a chance. It's one of the steps in forgiveness, by the way. Because love hopes all things, believes all things, and bears all things. Amen? That's how love works in our life. And if you want to really have forgiveness, you want to get rid of bitterness, you do that with love. You don't do that with rules. Rules doesn't fix stuff. Rules assigns a template that things should look like after love's been applied. Be careful. Saul had that that revamping of his reputation. He was guided. He was mentored. And I believe especially new Christians who have maybe bad reputations. Maybe they have some kind of character flaw that's widely known in the community. But you know they've had a genuine, life-altering encounter with our Savior. Go to bat for them. Help them. Let them grow a little bit. Verse 29, he goes on and he debated with some of them who were Greek-speaking Jews, the New Living Translation says, but they plotted to murder him when they heard about it. And so they sent him from Caesarea to his hometown of Tarsus. When you travel with us, if you get the opportunity to do that, I want to encourage you again. Uh, it's a life-changing experience to travel to Israel because these places come alive to you. Caesarea Maritima, which is, there are two of them. Caesarea Philippi is in the north in the Golan. Caesarea Maritima, which is this Caesarea, is on the coast. It was the port city of Herod. The, the Roman army garrison was stationed there. And so as you, as you travel to that, there's actually a, actually a harbor, an artificial harbor that was built there. And so Paul, uh, when he leaves, he's going to leave from that Roman port. Remember, Saul, Paul, is a Roman citizen. And so it is entirely possible. As a matter of fact, when you go there, there's excavations that are going on right now. They believe they may have actually uncovered the jail cells that at one point in time held the Apostle Paul before he was transmitted from there to Rome to suffer his Roman imprisonment. And so Saul is going to be in Caesarea quite a bit. He's going to minister there. It's a huge complex, and, and still it's one, of the, it's one of the surviving hippodromes, a place where they have the chariot races that, that exist anywhere in the world. Right there on the coast. It's a beautiful coastal city. And so Saul is now uh, going there, and he's going to be sent to Tarsus. He'll head to the southern part probably of Spain. You, you see what happens as Saul gets a new start. I think that's an important picture here. Saul's going to get a new start. He's going to have this time alone in Arabia. 
He's going to get some time to think about what the Lord's done in his life. And I think the picture is here for us. It takes time for God to work in our lives. And so when you're freshly in a relationship with the Lord, you've just come to faith in Christ, give God some time to work in your life. Let him do some things to you, through you, with you, so that you can be used in a greater way at a later time. And even though the the apostles were reluctant to believe that that happened, the fruit of his life bore it out in great measure. And ultimately, through him, the church would be strengthened. And of course, you take the writings of Paul out of the New Testament, you don't have much of it left. And you'd have a tough time trying to really back up almost every major doctrine of the faith because it is his writings that give us the major doctrines of faith. They're with us on Thursday nights in our study in in the book of Romans, the writings of Paul. It's from there that we realize that justification comes by faith, that we're saved by grace, that, that all these amazing things that happen to us because we're a child of God, Paul actually ends up being able to articulate them. Ananias... When, when you get to heaven, you're going to meet the man that led the Apostle Paul to faith in Christ. You're going to be able to thank you for being faithful. Because you and I benefited from it, amen? You and I benefited from it. From that growth in the early church. Verse 31, and then the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. There was a time of relative peace initially after the Apostle Paul comes back from this time in the wilderness that he spends in Arabia where he's sitting there with the Lord hearing these things. And I believe it is there that the Lord actually spoke to him most of what we know as the New Testament epistles, the letters that bear his name. I believe it was there that God was spending time alone with Saul who would become Paul. And that poised the church for growth. It put us on that path. And that path would include a lot of fiery trials. As we look at the remainder of the book of Acts, you're going to see this incredible heat that's turned up. And at the same time, these monumental victories. And that's the way it is in most of our lives. You're going to find out that if you're really growing, you're also going to be put to fire uh, quite often. You're going to have trials that you're going to look at and go, man, I don't know why I went through that. It's because that's how God works in our lives. We, our faith is tested when we go through stuff, right? If your faith isn't tested because you never go through anything, you don't actually know whether it really works or not. We learn to trust God by trusting God. I know that sounds simple, but it's very true. The more you trust God, the more God will prove that he is faithful. And the more he proves that he is faithful, the deeper you trust him. And the best way to do that is by having things in your life that are God-sized things that only God can take care of. And so God does that. He gives you fiery trials. He tests you. He allows you to have things that you can't take care of. Only he can take care of. And surely that is a picture of the church. You see, some people, when you think about great miracles... You look at it and you're like, ah, well, I'm going to, raising the dead. We're going to get a couple here as we wrap up tonight. Peter's miracles. 
But some people, you know, if you could literally heal a withered hand, that'd be a pretty major thing. Some people say it's raising the dead. But I think the greatest miracle we've already seen in Saul's life, and that's coming to faith in Christ in the first place. Because that one's eternal. You see, you could actually make somebody well. Let's say that God gifted you and you had the ability to heal and you walked up and someone is, is paralyzed and you touch their body and the Holy Spirit through you heals that person and they're raised up. Guess what? They're still going to die. It's not permanent. If you raise somebody who's already dead back to life on this earth, guess what? They're still going to die. So what's the greater miracle? That that person come to faith in Christ, and because of that, they'll never die. So the greater miracle is not healing people who are sick, or wounded, or even raising the dead. The greater miracle is sharing the gospel so that people can be saved. Because that's eternal. And so sometimes we think of miracles in the sense of, well, these great miracles... No, you're a walking miracle because you were once dead in your trespasses and sins and God has made you alive in Christ Jesus. That's the greatest miracle. A couple of things from Peter. and We'll wrap this up. And now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints at, at Leda and when you look at the coast of modern-day Israel, there's actually a town called Lud, and it's south of Jaffa, and it's not quite to the Gaza Strip. So when you're looking at the coast of Israel, it's in the south, so it's south of Jerusalem, and it's south of Jaffa, it's south of Caesarea Philippi. And so when, when you get there, that's called the Plain of Sharon. It's the area that's right along the coast, a very beautiful, gorgeous area. But it's a coastal plain. And so as they come there, that's pretty much where everybody lived. Because you have the coast city of Jaffa, which is a seaport. You have the road, which is, when you go to Jerusalem, there's the Jaffa Gate. The reason the Jaffa Gate's called the Jaffa Gate is the Jaffa Gate points towards Jaffa. You ever wondered why we can't do that still? You know, that you actually name a road because it goes to that place or something? So... As you headed directly west, you would have headed directly to Jaffa. That's where that road went, right out of that gate. And so as you head to Jaffa, you would have headed slightly about nine miles south down to this little city. And there was a certain man there named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Notice what he says. Jesus the Christ heals you. Not I heal you. Jesus the Christ heals you. There is no power in your name. There is no power in your hands. There is no power in the oil. There is power in the name of Jesus. And him alone. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up. Rise up. And walk. There is power in the name of Jesus. And so Peter begins this time of miracles. And you can see this exact scenario that I just gave you. 
You see, the great miracle is healing this man who was on his bed for eight years and was paralyzed. It's a great miracle, no doubt about it. A wonderful miracle, beautiful miracle. But he says to him, arise, make your bed. And he arose immediately, and so all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon, again, that's the plain actually, but there's also a town associated with it, saw him and turned to the Lord. And so Peter, we're now going to get into the life of Peter for a little bit of time. And as Peter does this, he simply heals this man in the name of Jesus. And when you look at the miracles in in the New Testament, you see a very common thread. Basically, it's at the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. It it isn't some hocus pocus. There's no magic words. There isn't something you need to do. It's the same way that you're raised to new life in Christ, that you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in this case, authenticating that Peter was an apostle, this man stands up. We see a greater miracle in verse 36 to verse 43, and then at Jaffa. And so he's gone from Lydda, which is slightly in the south, now almost directly west of Jerusalem at Jaffa, Port city, beautiful city, one of the oldest port cities on the Mediterranean. And as you travel there, we actually go to these places that are still in existence. And in Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. It actually means gazelle. So this woman had a beautiful name, named gazelle, full of good works, charitable charitable deeds, which she did. And so this is a woman of character. Someone that you and I would look at and go, why would God let her get sick in the first place, much less die? We think that way, don't we? There are times when I'm just like, Lord, her, him? You know, I understand. And if we're honest, there are people in the church that's like, if they died, we'd go, yeah, I saw that coming. (laughs) Kind of makes some sense there, Lord. But this is one of those ladies about whom it didn't make a bit of sense. This is one of those women that you're like, Lord, her? Dorcas? Full of good works, charitable deeds. She was known in the port city of Joppa. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, which was the custom of the Jewish people, the body was interred within 24 hours, and so she's washed. She's basically lying in state. And later in an upper room, since Lida was near Joppa, so this port city, this nine miles, it's a long day's walk, but it's a day's walk. The disciples had heard that Peter was there, and they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And then Peter arose and went with them, and so the men went down, and they came back. Now, that could be done in a day, if they're hustling. Uh, I can tell you because I've backpacked through the Sierras and covered 30 miles at a time carrying 70 pounds. So it can be done. So this was a day's journey. doesn't seem like it, but it's a day's journey. And so the men head off. They get Peter. Don't delay. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by weeping, which was the custom. So they're in this period of mourning, 24 hours. Now they're on the day of burial. 
Highly likely that from the time she died to the time the men go to Peter comes back, it's probably less than 24 hours. They stood by weeping and showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Now remember it says she did charitable works. These are probably all widows who had no way to provide for themselves that this woman had taken of her own goods had given of herself in such a magnanimous way that these widows were wearing the tunics that Dorcas had made for them. This woman's loved. And she's greatly used. And then Peter put them all out. And if you remember when the little girl was healed, what happened? Puts them all out. You see... God often works this way. He doesn't work with the, the flashy thingy. You know, he's not, he's not doing everything in an extreme way. It's not in front of like 10,000 people in a stadium. It's like the Lord and a set of hands and somebody who needs help. Peter put them out and he knelt down and he prayed and turning to the body. I love this. This is such absolute poetry and word usage he turned to the body he turned to the tent he turned to that which is dead it's actually acknowledging the fact that this woman is dead the body and said Tabitha arise and when she opened her eyes she saw Peter she sat up and then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Jaffa. And many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days with Simon the Tanner. This is one of those beautiful stories where this, this woman... And, and the words that are spoken to the little girl, Talitha Kume, Tabitha, arise, they're, they're almost identical. She says, look, the Lord's healed you. You're well, you're alive, rise up. And that woman became a testimony to the work of the Lord. And so is Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles are all wandering around this same geographic region. You have Lazarus who was once dead. You have the little boy who was dead up by Cana of Galilee who's now alive and wandering around. You have someone on the coast who was once dead and is now alive and wandering around. You have the widows who are wearing the garments that this woman Dorcas has made and now they're saying, yeah, this, you can imagine those, those I mean, those would be valuable garments. Yeah, these were made by Dorcas, the one who was dead and is now alive. But God is beginning to work in the church. And though these things are extreme and though these things as we read them are very spectacular, it's no less spectacular because the greatest miracle is most of us here in this room. It's us coming to faith in Christ because we also were once dead and now we're alive 
You see, you can imagine how people were running all over town. When you go to Jaffa and you come to the top of the hill, there's a minaret from a mosque up there and a few buildings. And there's also the tanning pits. And I love the fact that it says that he stayed with Simon the Tanner. This is Peter. This is a man who's going to argue with God about what's okay to eat. This is Peter, who's going to the house of someone whose whole business enterprise is unclean. Because all he does every day is deal with dead things. Put skins in vats. And when you travel, you can actually see the vats where they used to tan leather. But the point is this. The Lord's given us all of this detail. So that when you still travel to Jaffa and you see Simon the Tanner's house, which by the way is still there. And you see the tanning pits, which by the way are still there. And you realize that these people were actually named and the history of them is still there. That it gives you hope in the real miracle. Not in the miracle of raising Dorcas. In the miracle of raising dead people to life through Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Worship team's going to come back up. Pastors are going to come forward. And maybe you're here tonight and you've never been raised from death to life. You've never received Christ. For you tonight is the night you can know Jesus our Savior. And you can go from death to life. Maybe for some of you who've been struggling, there's been issues going on in your life. And you're wondering why God's allowing those trials, those struggles, those tribulations. Let God use them. Come up and be prayed for. We're going to spend a little time in worship, a little time in prayer. And then we'll dismiss. But remember the greater miracle as those of us who've received Christ and are now going to spend eternity with him. We have eternal life. We'll never die. So we've received that greater miracle. And so if nothing else tonight, thank the Lord for that greater miracle tonight. Tell him you love him. You're grateful for that work that's happened. Pastors are coming forward. Let's worship.